Uh, greetings to all those of you who are gathered with us this morning to worship our great God, uh, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, as we were taught last week. I invite you to turn in God's Word to the Gospel of John. We're at the very beginning of Jesus' earthly ministry, and as in every Gospel, that ministry is preceded by the witness of John the Baptist. So turn in the Gospel of John, chapter 1. We will be looking especially at verses 19 through 34. John 1, 19 through 34. Let's hear God's word together. And this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, No. So they said to him, Who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had sent from the Pharisees. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, Then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. Amen. May God bless the reading of his word. Let's pray together. Father, we come to you today and confess that you are very great, incomparably wonderful and majestic, and we are gathered here because we want to glimpse something of that majesty and respond with adoration. It is our desire, Lord, to have every corner of life conformed to that majesty, reflecting your greatness back to you and others. Grant that it would be so more and more, Lord. Use your word this morning as a means to, to that end. Father, we also confess that you are our provider. Father, you have given us one more day on this earth, another day of life. Thank you, Father, for providing life to us. Thank you, Father, for the fellowship of your people. Thank you that we are not left to follow you alone, but that we have brothers and sisters. We have the church with whom uh, we follow you and where there is fellowship and warmth and encouragement. Thank you for the gift of the church and Christian fellowship. And thank you, Father, supremely for the gift of your Son. Thank you that you did not withhold from us what was most precious to you. You gave for us and our salvation your very Son, that through him we might be reconciled to you. Father, we can't praise you enough for your great love, uh, your great generosity. We ask that we would not be hard-hearted and unresponsive to your grace, that we would be softened by your goodness and extend goodness and generosity to those around us ourselves. Father, be pleased to bless this time uh, use your word today to help us to see the majesty of your son, Jesus, and cause us to live for him. Amen. 
There's a really beautiful passage in the Old Testament where Israel's most famous king, King David, describes the goodness of the rule of a wise and good king. And here's how he describes it, 2 Samuel 23, 3 through 4. When one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, he dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. That is, that's what it's like to live under the rule of a good king. Uh, the rule of a good king doesn't con- cause life to constrict. The reign of a good king causes life to flourish, causes the people to rejoice. One way we might sum up Israel's history is the long expectation of God's coming king. Uh, There is, in Israel's history, this prolonged waiting for God to send Israel and the world the ultimate king, the king whose reign would usher in an era of blessing and joy for God's people. This was especially true in the period after the book that we just looked at in the Old Testament, Ezra Nehemiah. For three or four centuries, uh, the Israelites, for the most part, didn't have a king. They were subject to a foreign nation, and there was this pronounced longing for God's king or Messiah or Christ to come on the scene and put things right. And the passage we're looking at today in John's gospel, uh, and specifically the ministry of John the Baptist, points to the fact that in Jesus Christ, that king that Israel was waiting for, that king that the world was waiting for to put things right, has come in the person of Jesus. So we look at this passage this morning, I want us to note especially three things. We'll consider first the ministry of John the Baptist, the great forerunner to Jesus. Second, we'll consider Jesus' identity as the Lamb of God. And third, uh, Jesus' identity as the Spirit-empowered King. So, as in every gospel, John begins the account of Jesus' earthly ministry with John. And John, John's ministry included calling the Jews of his day to repent, to turn from their wickedness and submit to God. And those who repented, he would baptize, that is, immerse in water as a sign of their repentance. Now, this was slightly unusual in first century Judaism because although baptism existed, it was typically Gentiles who were baptized. If you're a Gentile, a non-Jew, and you wanted to become a Jew, baptism was a part of that process. But John was doing something pretty radical. He was going to Jews and saying, you need to be baptized too. It's not enough that you're physically descended from Abraham. You need your heart to be changed, and you need to turn back to God, repent. And his baptismal ministry and call to repentance caught the attention of the religious establishment, the religious leaders of the day in Jerusalem, and they sent out priests and Levites to try to figure out what John was up to, who he was and why he was doing what he was doing. And so these priests asked John, who are you? And he denies being the Christ. That's the first thing he says. It's a negative statement about who he isn't. I am not the Christ. Uh, Christ uh, means anointed one. It's the Greek equivalent of the Hebrew Messiah anointed one, and it refers to God's coming king. John says, I'm not that king. Uh, We should note that in John's day, there were these messianic expectations. People were waiting for God's king to come on the scene. John says, it's not me. Uh, John's a witness to the Christ, but he is not the Christ. Then they ask, are you Elijah? If you know the Old Testament at all, you'll know that Elijah was a great prophet of God, 
whose ministry involved calling the people of Israel to repent of idol worship and turn back to the Lord. Uh, Elijah never saw death. He was whisked away into heaven, having never died. And, and there were expectations in the first century that before the great day of the Lord, before God comes, Elijah will come back. And John the Baptist says, I'm not that figure. I'm not Elijah. Now, intriguingly, in the other Gospels, Jesus does identify John the Baptist with Elijah in the sense that he had a ministry like Elijah's. Uh, he was calling the people of God to repent in preparation for the Lord's coming. But John is denying that he is identical to Elijah, the same person. I'm not him. So are you the prophet? This is another figure connected with God's in-time intervention in history. Uh, this is a reference to Deuteronomy 18, where Moses tells the people of Israel that God will one day send a prophet like him. And so there was an expectation that a prophet, prophet like Moses, greater than Moses, would come on the scene. Now this prophet incidentally refers to Jesus, but we won't uh, get into that. So John says, no, I'm not Elijah, I'm not the Christ, I'm not the prophet. But that doesn't mean that the Old Testament scriptures don't speak of my ministry. He quotes Isaiah, Isaiah 40, where it's written, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord. Isaiah is saying God's going to show up. Yahweh is going to show up. And before his coming, there's going to be a spokesperson, a messenger who prepares the people of God for his coming. And that spokesperson is John the Baptist. Two things to note here. First of all, in, in the Hebrew, in Isaiah 40, uh, the voice in the wilderness is a forerunner to the coming of Yahweh. Yahweh is going to show up, and this messenger is going to get the people of God ready. Now, who actually shows up after John? John's pointing to someone. Who shows up when Yahweh shows up? Jesus. And the implication is that Jesus is Yahweh. Jesus is God incarnate, as we saw last week from the prologue, who has come to visit the people of God and bring the blessings of God. Second thing to note is that there is continuity between the Old Testament and the ministry of John the Baptist and, by extension, Jesus. It's very important for us to recognize. Uh, we should not open the Gospel of John or Luke or whatever and assume that that's the starting point of the story of Jesus. The story of Jesus begins at creation, right? We need to understand the work of Jesus, the ministry of Jesus, within the framework of the whole uh, narrative of Scripture. The creation of the world, the fall of Adam, the call of Israel to be a distinctive people, all of this is important background to making sense of the life and work of Jesus Christ. And John identifies a point of continuity with what, had, what God had been doing in the past by quoting the prophet Isaiah. Well, they're not completely satisfied. They ask him, okay, if you're not any of these three figures, Elijah, Christ, prophet, why do you baptize? And there's a sense in which John doesn't exactly answer the question. He does a few verses later. He says, I baptize with water. Yeah, you're right. I've been authorized by God to baptize. I am baptizing. But there is someone you're not aware of, and this someone is so great that I'm not even worthy to untie the, the, uh, his sandals, the straps of his sandal. Now, intriguingly, in John's day, um, a student of a teacher was basically expected to do more or less everything a slave would do except untie sandals. That was viewed as too menial, even for a student. And what John is saying is that this coming one, the Messiah, Jesus, is so great that I'm not even worthy of doing the lowly task of a slave in relation to him. 
I'm that insignificant compared to this person. There's almost a sense in which John answers their question by saying, you're asking the wrong question. The question isn't, who am I? The question is, who is he, the coming one? That's the one you want to be interested in. His whole life was dedicated not to to pointing people to himself and how great John the Baptist was, but to pointing away from himself to the Messiah, to Jesus Christ. I think John's attitude, uh, demeanor in this passage challenges us. We often have the reverse attitude, don't we? We're more concerned about our honor and reputation than the honor and reputation of Jesus Christ. We're eager to be accepted by those around us, to be approved, uh, to be liked. Uh, We're very concerned to do things that will make us look good in the eyes of others, and often we don't have that same zeal for the honor of Jesus Christ. Perhaps that's one of the reasons we're reluctant to share Jesus with others. We don't want to look bad, Uh, but we don't have that same passion to see Jesus made much of. We're concerned about our honor, not looking bad, not his honor, and his being known in the world. One indicator of increasing spiritual maturity is that you care less and less about what people think of you, and more and more about what they think about Jesus. You become the kind of person who, when they see people worshiping Jesus and submitting to him, even though they go unnoticed, they rejoice because it's about Jesus, it's not about them. They want him to be exalted. They want his purposes to be accomplished. It's not about what do I want out of life? How can I be fulfilled? How can I be honored? Life increasingly is about how can I live more and more for Jesus and make him known? Is that the driving motivation in your life? Well, one basic way in which we honor Christ is by publicly confessing him as our Lord. We shouldn't be anonymous Christians. Right, we're, we're Christians deep in our hearts, but the people around us don't know we're Christians. Uh, we ought to fly the flag. We have a great king and savior, and that should be known. We're Christians, we follow the Lord. He is our savior, uh, he is our guide, he is our rock, he is our king. Do the people around you know that you're a Christian? Your neighbors, your coworkers, or are you an anonymous Christian? One foundational way we honor Jesus is by bearing witness to the fact that he is king and he is our king. Jesus says in Matthew 10, verses 32 through 34, So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I, will, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. John understood his comparative insignificance and the greatness of Jesus, and his life was spent pointing people to him. The next day, John makes a tremendous statement about the identity of Christ. Verse 29. Following day, John says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, this is probably not the first time that John met Jesus. He sees him for the first time and says, Behold the Lamb of God. Uh, We think in all likelihood that this occurs after the baptism of John. And it's important to make a distinction between what John the Baptist would have understood by that title historically, Lamb of God, and what John, the gospel writer, different person, meant by that statement in the context of his gospel. Uh, John the Baptist, when he said, Behold, Lamb of God takes away the sin of the world, probably didn't understand the full significance of that title. Keep in mind, he lived before the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. And like Jesus' other disciples, the process of understanding who Jesus was, his true identity, was in fact the process. It was gradual, it was slow, uh, it was kind of a bumpy road at times. 
But eventually they understood, ah, he's the Messiah, he's the Son of God. So John here, John the Baptist, probably speaks better than he knows. But within the context of this gospel, it's clear that the gospel writer wants us to see the full implications of this title. Jesus is the Lamb of God in the sense that he is God's ultimate sacrifice to wash guilty sinners of their sin. In the Old Testament, if an Israelite wanted to draw near to God and worship, blood would have to be spilled. An innocent animal would have to die. Uh, And that was because sinful men, morally defiled people like us, couldn't enter into the holy presence of God. They needed cleansing and washing. And those sacrifices were pictures to teach the people of God that there would need to be some definitive act of God by which he decisively puts away our sin. John is saying that definitive, climactic sacrifice is Jesus. He's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He is our substitute. At the cross, the judgment of God against our sins was poured out upon him in its entirety. He was punished in our place that we might be washed, not of part of our guilt, but all of it. Through his sacrifice, all those who believe in him stand before a holy God, pure and spotless and cleansed. That means that all those who place their faith in Jesus should have confidence before God. Our confidence isn't based on the fact that we're good people, frequently not. Our confidence is based on the fact that the Lamb of God was slain for us and he washes away all sin. And so we can come before God with confidence, recognizing that he is our Father in heaven who loves us, cares for us. In the Old Testament, uh, you wouldn't just offer one sacrifice and that would end it, right? Sacrifices offered took away sin. No, sacrifices kept having to be offered, indicating that sin had never been decisively removed. Right? If there had been one sacrifice that really took away sin, the whole sacrificial system would cease. Right? The fact that they go on shows that sin hasn't been decisively removed. Well, the fact that Jesus offered himself once, that there was one sacrifice, shows that all sin has been decisively been dealt with and no further sacrifices are necessary. Everything that we needed to be cleansed of our guilt has been accomplished by Jesus Christ. This helps to answer uh, one of the most important questions that we can ask as human beings. What do I do with my guilt? What do I do with all the evil that I have committed in my life? And there are different answers that we give to this question. And one answer we could give is to say, is to rationalize it. Well, my guilt's not that great. It really isn't that bad. Or perhaps there isn't even right and wrong, so there is no such thing as guilt. We can rationalize and explain away. Another option is to blame other people. We can blame our upbringing. My parents really failed on the product of a broken home. I'm bad, but it's because they did it. Or maybe society. There's social inequality. That's why I'm such a bad person. Other people made me do it. It's a popular one. Uh, Another option is to try to make amends. Try through uh, doing good things to wipe away the moral stain. The problem is that moral stain isn't wiped away so easily or so readily. Uh, We can simply ignore our guilt, lose ourselves in interesting work, the pleasures of life, and kind of uh, suppress the conscience. Or we can see the depth of our depravity and darkness in our hearts and guilt before God and despair, recognizing that there isn't anything we can do to change ourselves or make ourselves clean. All of those are spiritual dead ends. John is telling us there's a better way. The Lamb of God decisively deals with the defilement and guilt of sin. Uh, All those other approaches are gonna leave you guilty in the sight of God, 
But all those who come to Jesus Christ and rest in him will be washed completely and can live before God with a clean conscience. He is the Lamb of God. Finally, he is the Spirit-anointed king. The Spirit-anointed king. Uh, John tells us that the whole point of his ministry was to identify the Messiah to Israel. He says in verse 31, I myself did not know him. This, does, this doesn't mean that John the Baptist didn't know Jesus prior to his baptism. John uh, presumably knew Jesus. Uh, what John means is that he didn't know Jesus was the Messiah. He didn't know that Jesus was the one that God had sent into the world to redeem mankind, and it was at his baptism that he identified Jesus as such. Uh, John tells, tells us in verse 33 that God told him that he would know who the Messiah is by this sign. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. It's the coming king. So that was the sign that God revealed to John the Baptist. And then at, at the baptism of Jesus, uh, John sees God the Holy Spirit coming down visibly uh, upon Jesus Christ and remaining on him, and that indicates to John that this is in fact the Messiah, the king that God had promised. And notice that the Spirit doesn't just descend and then leave. The Spirit descends and remains. God the Holy Spirit continues to empower King Jesus to do the works of God all throughout his life. Uh, and therefore, in everything that he does, his life is pleasing to God. Here we should see the fulfillment of an Old Testament expectation that God would one day send a king to his people who would be overflowing with the Holy Spirit. Uh, Israel's first king, King Saul, at the beginning of his reign, uh, was empowered by the Holy Spirit. The Spirit rushed upon him, and he uh, did great deeds. But Saul proved to be unfaithful to the Lord, and the Spirit left Saul. Then God raised up a second king, a king after his own heart named David. And intriguingly, when David is anointed by Samuel as king, uh, we are told, 1 Samuel 16, 13, the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. Contrast to Saul, where the Spirit left, the Spirit stayed or remained on David, the great precursor uh, to Christ, the one who anticipated Christ. The Spirit comes on King David and remains on King David. Then about 250 years later in the prophet Isaiah, uh, Isaiah tells us that a king is coming who will overflow with the Spirit. Isaiah 11, verses 2 through 4 says, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. Now that is a reference to David's line. Stump of Jesse. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. Note the parallel with rest. The Spirit doesn't just come. The Spirit rests on this king. The Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. A king is coming who possesses the Holy Spirit in all of his fullness, and he is going to have an unparalleled wisdom like Solomon. 
and all of his judgments or verdicts are going to be in exact conformity to the facts. Everything he decrees will be wise and right and good. When he comes, wrongs will be put to right. A king overflowing with wisdom. Isaiah 42, 1 and 4. Behold my servant, and the servant is the same uh, figure as the king mentioned earlier. Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth. Here there, there is that connection between possessing the Holy Spirit and now bringing justice not just to a, a, one people of the earth, but to the whole earth. Uh, his reign is going to result in judgment on the wicked and blessing upon the righteous. And in Isaiah, the coming of the king and the rendering of just verdicts is connected to the renewal of creation in all things. You get these beautiful images in Isaiah of like a small child playing with a uh, poisonous snake or a lion uh, laid down next to a lamb and not maiming it, not destroying it. The idea is that creation is going to be healed. There's going to be a renewal. And that renewal is connected with the reign of this spirit-anointed king. When he comes, he's going to make everything right and good and bring relief to mankind. One more, Isaiah 61, uh, 1 and 3. The spirit of the Lord is upon me. And actually, Jesus quotes this about himself in Luke. Uh, The spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit. Here, his rule is connected with joy. Liberty to the captives, those who are enchained by the guilt of their sin, by demonic powers, are freed by this king. Those who submit to his life-giving reign experience joy and life. Those who are sad and brokenhearted are tended to by the king, and he brings them comfort and peace. That's what his rule is like. It's not life-extinguishing, it's life-giving. And the point is that when we get to Jesus... And John sees the Holy Spirit come down and remain uh, on Jesus. Now, at last, we, the, the anointed king that we've been waiting for has come, and it's Jesus. And he is the one who is going to fulfill Isaiah's prophecies, and he is the greater David who is led by the Holy Spirit in everything that he does. Everything that is do- he does is wise and right and good. And our hope should be in him. The implications of our relationship to Jesus are massive in light of this. One basic thing it means is we should have confidence in Jesus. We should have confidence that he's going to take care of us and our family. That's what kings do. Kings take care of their people. If you belong to him, to him he's going to take care of you. Do you believe that? Uh, we live at a time where there are lots of reasons, perhaps, for anxiety, lots of reasons people feel uh, fretful. Uh, they see that perhaps the state is overstepping its bounds in ways that trouble them. Uh, They see a lot of instability, a lot of cause for concern in society, and they wonder what's going to happen to them, to to their children. In a time like this, the way that we honor our king is by believing with all of our heart that he's going to take care of us. 
If we give way to anxiety, if we're controlled by fear, what we say is that this problem or this present situation is bigger than Jesus. He is not big enough to help us through this, and it dishonors him. The way we honor Jesus is by saying, I've got a great king who's going to put everything right, and he infallibly protects his children, and I take my stand there. I rest in that. So have confidence in your king. Second of all, trust in the wisdom of his decrees. Do you believe that Jesus is uh, able to choose for you better than you would choose for yourself? That what he brings about in your life is better than what you could have brought about in your own life? There are things that Jesus is going to decree and bring about that you don't understand. That brings, things that bring pain and heartache. But when that happens, recognizing that we have a wise king who always decrees what is best, we should submit to him without grumbling and complaining and say, yes, Lord. I don't know how this is for my good, but I know this is exactly what's right for me. Trust the wisdom of Christ's determinations in your life. And finally, submit to him as your king. Obey his commands. Our king gives good laws. What Isaiah shows us is that the, the, the commands of Christ, the laws of Christ, they don't destroy life, they don't constrict life, they enhance it. To obey Jesus is to experience joy and peace and life. Now, I'm not saying it's easy to obey Jesus. At times, it's quite challenging and hard. Neither am I saying that we can be saved through our moral striving. If you keep the law, God will accept you. I'm not saying that. Jesus saves us, not law-keeping. However, those who submit themselves to the will of the king experience blessedness, happiness, increasing joy. You need to understand that if you're living in rebellion against Jesus, you're not, getting, you're not enhancing your life. You're diminishing it. You're experiencing death. Joy and life and peace comes from submitting to the life-giving reign of King Jesus. Are you submitting to him? Are you trusting him in him, not just as your savior, but resting in him as your king and seeking to obey his commands, recognizing that in the path of obedience, there's joy in life. Here at last is the spirit-empowered, anointed king that Isaiah prophesied. And it's not just that he possesses the Holy Spirit in all of its fullness uh, himself. He actually gives it to the Holy Spirit. I'm sorry, he gives us, I should say, the Holy Spirit as well. We see that in verse 33. This is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. Uh, there's a parallel here between John's baptism and the Holy Spirit. Uh, John's water baptism was a symbol pointing to the real thing. Jesus gives us the real thing. The Holy Spirit is poured out by the Son, by Jesus, and he internally cleanses and renews us and comes to dwell in us so that we can increasingly obey the commands of God. It's not just that God gives us commands and leaves us to ourselves to obey those commands. It's that he provides the Holy Spirit to provide supernatural empowerment that we might keep those commands. So when we find that uh, when we're tired in the path of obedience or we're discouraged by our failures, we're tempted to give up, uh, we feel like our resources aren't sufficient to do what God has called us to do, we need to recognize that God hasn't left us alone. God has given us the Holy Spirit to give us supernatural power what we couldn't do in our own strength. So when we come to one of these moments of weakness, we say, Holy Spirit, help me, strengthen me, and we press on in faith. This then is who Jesus is. The king we've all been waiting for, that the world has been waiting for, 
And John's invitation to us, John's ministry to us today, uh, is to trust in him as our protector, to live for him the way John did, seeking his glory, and um, to submit to his life-giving rules that we might know joy in this life. May God help us to do this more and more for his glory and our good. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we confess that you are our king. Lord, if we have been responding in unbelief to the challenges of life, if we have been gripped by anxiety and fear in response to what's happening, forgive us. Forgive us for dishonoring you. Help us, Lord Jesus, to live with a greater confidence and trust in you. Help us to believe that what you decree in our lives is right. Lord, glorify your name in us, we ask. Amen.